Alright everyone, hey, how are you doing? Hope everyone's doing well out there. This is Black Clock Audio Tales, and we are here to tell you ghost stories, spooky stories, folklore, gothic horror, weird fiction, and more. So, how are you doing? Uh, we are in week three of Poe, the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe, and as always, Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by FoundItemClothing.com and BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm with bunny slippers. They've got those Dino Sound slippers. They've got soft plush uppers and firm foam bottoms that grip and don't slip. Make Dino Sounds every three steps. Keep your feet warm this winter. Don't lose your feet to frostbite. And eat vitamin C or you'll get scurvy. And listen to PGTTCM, our Cthulhu show that is the end of the month, every month. This month, we're going to have some Ken Height. We're going to have some Scott Glancy. Maybe we'll have some Andrew Migliori. I don't know. We'll probably have some David Heath. And of course, we'll have me, your host, D.B. Spitzer. Thank you again so much for listening to People's Guide to Cthulhu Mythos, Black Clock Audio Tales, Dave's Corner of this Podcast. Articulate warbling, and sooner than later, Dave's underground goat shenanigans. All produced through Badger Strip Studio here in glorious Portland, Oregon. Give us five stars if you like the show. Let us know, give us a review, or you can always donate money through some sort of patron scheme through podbean.com. Go to pgttcm.podbean.com. Click the donate button and learn how, or go to pgttcm.com and learn how to be a patron by clicking on the patron button. We're on social media, Facebook, MySpace, no, we're not on MySpace, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Facebook and Instagram mostly is where you're going to get the cool, fresh news, and Twitter if you just kind of want like a little repeater of the RSS feed. Thank you again so much, and here we go with Edgar Allan Poe, Week 3, Book 3, The Raven Works Collection, Collected, Collection, Collected. Edgar Allan Poe. Recording by Cooper Leaf. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe. Narrative of A. Gordon him. Chapter 16. It had been Captain Guy's original intention, after satisfying himself about the auroras, to proceed through the Strait of Magellan and up along the western coast of Patagonia. But information received at Tristan d'Acuna induced him to steer to the southward in the hope of falling in with some small islands said to lie about the parallel of 60 degrees south longitude 41 degrees 20 minutes west. In the event of his not discovering these lands, he designed, should the season prove favorable, to push on toward the pole. Accordingly, on the 12th of December, we made sail in that direction. On the 18th, we found ourselves about the station indicated by glass, and cruised for three days in that neighborhood without finding any traces of the islands he had mentioned. On the 21st, the weather being unusually pleasant, we again made sail to the southward, 
with the resolution of penetrating in that course as far as possible. Before entering upon this portion of my narrative, it may be as well for the information of those readers who have paid little attention to the progress of discovery in these regions, to give some brief account of the very few attempts at reaching the Southern Pole which have hitherto been made. That of Captain Cook was the first of which we have any distinct account. In 1772, he sailed to the south in the Resolution, accompanied by Lieutenant Forneau in the Adventure. In December, he found himself as far as the 58th parallel of south latitude, and in longitude 26 degrees 57 minutes east. Here, he met with narrow fields of ice about eight or ten inches thick and running northwest and southeast. This ice was in large cakes, and usually it was packed so closely that the vessel had great difficulty in forcing a passage. At this period, Captain Cook supposed, from the vast number of birds to be seen and from other indications, that he was in the near vicinity of land. He kept on to the southward, the weather being exceedingly cold, until he reached the 64th parallel in longitude 38 degrees 14 minutes east. Here he had mild weather with gentle breezes for five days, the thermometer being at 36. In January 1773 the vessels crossed the Antarctic Circle, but did not succeed in penetrating much farther for upon reaching latitude 67 degrees 15 minutes, they found all farther progress impeded by an immense body of ice, extending all along the southern horizon as far as the eye could reach. This ice was of every variety, and some large flows of it, miles in extent, formed a compact mass rising 18 or 20 feet above the water. It being late in the season, and no hope entertained of rounding these obstructions, Captain Cook now reluctantly turned to the northward. In the November following, he renewed his search in the Antarctic. In latitude 59 degrees 40 minutes, he met with a strong current setting to the southward. In December, when the vessels were in latitude 67 degrees 31 minutes, longitude 142 degrees 54 minutes west, the cold was excessive with heavy gales and fog. Here also birds were abundant, the albatross, the penguin, and the petrel especially. In latitude 70 degrees 23 minutes, some large islands of ice were encountered, and shortly afterward the clouds to the southward were observed to be of a snowy whiteness, indicating the vicinity of field ice. In latitude 71 degrees 10 minutes, longitude 106 degrees 54 minutes west, the navigators were stopped as before by an immense frozen expanse which filled the whole area of the southern horizon. The northern edge of this expanse was ragged and broken, so firmly wedged together as to be utterly impassable and extending about a mile to the southward. Behind it, the frozen surface was comparatively smooth for some distance, until terminated in the extreme background 
by gigantic ranges of ice mountains, the one towering above the other. Captain Cook concluded that this vast field reached the southern pole, or was joined to a continent. Mr. J. N. Reynolds, whose great exertions and perseverance have at length succeeded in getting set on foot a national expedition, partly for the purpose of exploring these regions, thus speaks of the attempt of the resolution. We are not surprised that Captain Cook was unable to go beyond 71 degrees 10 minutes, but we are astonished that he did attain that point on the meridian of 106 degrees 54 minutes west longitude. Palmer's Island lies south of the Shetland latitude 64 degrees, and tends to the southward and westward farther than any navigator has yet penetrated. Cook was standing for this land when his progress was arrested by the ice, which we apprehend must always be the case in that point and so early in the season as the 6th of January. And we should not be surprised if a portion of the icy mountains described was attached to the main body of Palmer's land, or to some other portions of land lying farther to the southward and westward. In 1803, Captains Christenstern and Lasiowski were dispatched by Alexander of Russia for the purpose of circumnavigating the globe. In endeavoring to get south, they made no farther than 59 degrees, 58 minutes in longitude, 70 degrees, 15 minutes west. They here met with strong currents setting eastwardly. Whales were abundant, but they saw no ice. In regard to this voyage, Mr. Reynolds observes that if Christenstern had arrived where he did earlier in the season, he must have encountered ice. It was March when he reached the latitude specified. The winds, prevailing as they do from the southward and westward, had carried the flows aided by currents into that icy region bounded on the north by Georgia, east by Sandwich Land and the South Orkneys, and west by the South Shetland Islands. In 1822, Captain James Weddell of the British Navy, with two very small vessels, penetrated farther to the south than any previous navigator, and this too without encountering extraordinary difficulties. He states that although he was frequently hemmed in by ice before reaching the 72nd parallel, yet upon attaining it, not a particle was to be discovered and that upon arriving at the latitude of 74 degrees 15 minutes, no fields, and only three islands of ice were visible. It is somewhat remarkable that, although vast flocks of birds were seen, and other usual indications of land, and although south of the Shetlands unknown coasts were observed from the masthead tending southwardly, Waddell discourages the idea of land existing in the polar regions of the south. On the 11th of January, 1823, Captain Benjamin Morrell of the American schooner Wasp sailed from Kerguelen's land with a view to penetrating as far south as possible. On the 1st of February, he found himself in latitude 64 degrees, 52 minutes south, longitude 118 degrees 27 minutes east. 
The following passage is extracted from his journal of that date. The wind soon freshened to an eleven-knot breeze, and we embraced this opportunity of making to the west, being, however, convinced that the farther we went south beyond latitude 64 degrees, the less ice was to be apprehended. We steered a little to the southward until we crossed the Antarctic Circle, and were in latitude 69 degrees, 15 minutes east. In this latitude there was no field ice, and very few ice islands in sight. Under the date of March 14th, I find also this entry. The sea was now entirely free of field ice, and there was not more than a dozen ice islands in sight. At the same time, the temperature of the air and water was at least 13 degrees higher, more mild, than we had ever found it between the parallels of 60 and 62 south. We were now in latitude 70 degrees, 14 minutes south, and the temperature of the air was 47, and that of the water 44. In this situation, I found the variation to be 14 degrees, 27 minutes easterly per azimuth. I have several times passed within the Arctic Circle on different meridians, and have uniformly found the temperature both of the air and the water to become more and more mild the farther I advance beyond the 65th degree of south latitude, and that the variation decreases in the same proportion. Well, north of this latitude, say between 60 and 65 south, we frequently had great difficulty in finding a passage for the vessels between the immense and almost innumerable ice islands, some of which were from one to two miles in circumference, and more than 500 feet above the surface of the water. Being nearly destitute of fuel and water, and without proper instruments, it being also late in the season, Captain Morrell was now obliged to put back without attempting any further progress to the westward, although an entirely open sea lay before him. He expresses the opinion that, had not these overruling considerations obliged him to retreat, he could have penetrated, if not to the pole itself, at least to the 85th parallel. I have given his ideas respecting these matters somewhat at length, that the reader may have an opportunity of seeing how far they were borne out by my own subsequent experience. In 1831, Captain Briscoe, in the employ of Messieurs Enderby, whale-ship owners of London, sailed in the brig Lively for the South Seas, accompanied by the cutter Tula. On the 28th of February, being in latitude 66 degrees 30 minutes south, longitude 47 degrees 31 minutes east, he described land and clearly discovered through the snow the black peaks of a range of mountains running east-southeast. He remained in this neighborhood during the whole of the following month, but was unable to approach the coast nearer than within ten leagues, owing to the boisterous state of the weather. Finding it impossible to make further discovery during this season, he returned northward to winter in Van Diemen's Land. In the beginning of 1832 he again proceeded southwardly, and on the 4th of February was seen to the southeast in latitude 67 degrees 15 minutes, Longitude 69 degrees, 29 minutes west. 
This was soon found to be an island near the headland of the country he had first discovered. On the 21st of the month, he succeeded in landing on the latter and took possession of it in the name of William IV, calling it Adelaide's Island in honor of the English Queen. These particulars being made known to the Royal Geographical Society of London, the conclusion was drawn by that body that there is a continuous tract of land extending from 47 degrees 30 minutes east to 69 degrees 29 minutes west longitude, running the parallel of from 66 to 67 degrees south latitude. In respect to this conclusion, Mr. Reynolds observes, In the correctness of it, we by no means concur. Nor do the discoveries of Briscoe warrant any such indifference. It was within these limits that Waddell proceeded south on a meridian to the east of Georgia, Sandwich Land, and the South Orkney and Shetland Islands. My own experience will be found to testify most directly to the falsity of the conclusion arrived at by the Society. These are the principal attempts which have been made at penetrating to a high southern latitude, and it will now be seen that there remained, previous to the voyage of the Jane, nearly 300 degrees of longitude in which the Arctic Circle had not been crossed at all. Of course, a wide field lay before us for discovery, and it was with feelings of the most intense interest that I heard Captain Guy express his resolution of pushing boldly to the southward. End of section 16. Recording by Cooper Leith. Recording by Cooper Leith. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe. Raven Edition. Volume 3. By Edgar Allan Poe. Chapter 17. We kept our course southwesterly for four days after giving up the search for Glasses Islands without meeting any ice at all. On the 26th at noon, we were in latitude 63 degrees 23 minutes south, longitude 41 degrees 25 minutes west. We now saw several large ice islands and a flow of field ice, not, however, of any great extent. The winds generally blew from the southeast or the northeast, but were very light. Whenever we had a westerly wind, which was seldom, it was invariably attended with a rain squall. Every day we had more or less snow. The thermometer on the 27th stood at 35. January 1, 1828. This day we found ourselves completely hemmed in by the ice, and our prospects looked cheerless indeed. A strong gale blew during the whole afternoon from the northeast, and drove large cakes of drift against the rudder and counter with such violence that we all trembled for the consequences. Toward evening, the gale still blowing with fury, a large field in front separated, and we were enabled, by carrying a press of sail, to force a passage through the smaller flakes into some open water beyond. As we approached this space, we took in sail by degrees and having at length got clear, 
lay to under a single reefed foresail. January 2. We now had tolerably pleasant weather. At noon we found ourselves in latitude 69 degrees 10 minutes south, longitude 42 degrees 20 minutes west, having crossed the Antarctic Circle. Very little ice was to be seen to the southward, although large fields of it lay behind us. This day we rigged some sounding gear, using a large iron pot capable of holding 20 gallons and a line of 200 fathoms. We found the current setting to the north about a quarter of a mile per hour. The temperature of the air was now about 33. Here we found the variation to be 14 degrees 28 minutes easterly per azimuth. January 5. We had still held on to the southward without any very great impediments. On this morning, however, being in latitude 73 degrees 15 minutes east, longitude 42 degrees 10 minutes west, we were again brought to a stand by an immense expanse of firm ice. We saw nevertheless much open water to the southward and felt no doubt of being able to reach it eventually. Standing to the eastward along the edge of the flow, we at length came to a passage of about a mile in width through which we warped our way by sundown. The sea in which we now were was thickly covered with ice islands, but had no field ice, and we pushed on boldly as before. The cold did not seem to increase, although we had snow very frequently, and now and then hail squalls of great violence. Immense flocks of the albatross flew over the schooner this day, going from southeast to northwest. January 7. The sea still remained pretty well open, so we had no difficulty in holding on our course. To the westward we saw some icebergs of incredible size, and in the afternoon passed very near one whose summit could not have been less than 400 fathoms from the surface of the ocean. Its girth was probably, at the base, three-quarters of a league, and several streams of water were running from crevasses in its sides. We remained in sight of this island two days, and then only lost it in a fog. January 10. Early this morning we had the misfortune to lose a man overboard. He was an American named Peter Vrandenberg, a native of New York, and was one of the most valuable hands on board the schooner. In going over the bows, his foot slipped, and he fell between two cakes of ice, never rising again. At noon of this day, we were in latitude 78 degrees 30 minutes, longitude 40 degrees 15 minutes west. The cold was now excessive, and we had hail squalls continually from the northward and eastward. In this direction, also we saw several more immense icebergs, and the whole horizon to the eastward appeared to be blocked up with field ice, rising in tiers one mass above the other. Some driftwood floated by during the evening, and a great quantity of birds flew over. Some driftwood floated by during the evening, and a great quantity of birds flew over, among which were nellies, petrels, albatrosses, and a large bird of a brilliant blue plumage. The variation here per azimuth was less than it had been previously to our passing the Antarctic Circle. January 12. 
Our passage to the south again looked doubtful, as nothing was to be seen in the direction of the pole but one apparently limitless flow, backed by absolute mountains of ragged ice, one precipice of which arose frowningly above the other. We stood, too, on the westward until the 14th, in the hope of finding an entrance. January 14. This morning we reached the western extremity of the field which had impeded us, and weathering it came to an open sea without a particle of ice. Upon sounding with 200 fathoms, we here found a current setting southwardly at the rate of half a mile per hour. The temperature of the air was 47, that of the water 34. We now sailed to the southward without meeting any interruption of movement until the 16th, when at noon we were in latitude 81 degrees 21 minutes, longitude 42 degrees west. We here again sounded and found a current setting still southwardly and at the rate of three quarters of a mile per hour. The variation per azimuth had diminished and the temperature of the air was mild and pleasant, the thermometer being as high as 51. At this period, not a particle of ice was to be discovered. All hands on board now felt certain of obtaining the pole. January 17. This day was full of incident. Innumerable flights of birds flew over us from the southward, and several were shot from the deck. One of them, a species of pelican, proved to be excellent eating. About midday, a small flow of ice was seen from the masthead off the larboard bow, and upon it there appeared to be some large animal. As the weather was good and nearly calm, Captain Guy ordered out two of the boats to see what it was. Dirk Peters and myself accompanied the mate in the larger boat. Upon coming up with the flow, we perceived that it was in the possession of a gigantic creature of the race of the Arctic bear but far exceeding in size the largest of these animals. Being well armed, we made no scruple of attacking it at once. Several shots were fired in quick succession, the most of which took effect, apparently in the head and body. Nothing discouraged, however, the monster threw himself from the ice and swam with open jaws to the boat in which were Peters and myself. Owing to the confusion which ensued among us at this unexpected turn of adventure, no person was ready immediately with a second shot, and the bear had actually succeeded in getting half his vast bulk across our gunwale and seizing one of the men by the small of his back before any efficient means were taken to repel him. In this extremity, nothing but the promptness and agility of Peters saved us from destruction. Leaping upon the back of the huge beast, he plunged the blade of a knife behind the neck, reaching the spinal marrow at a blow. The brute tumbled into the sea lifeless and without a struggle, rolling over Peters as he fell. The latter soon recovered himself, and a rope being thrown to him, he secured the carcass before entering the boat. We then returned in triumph to the schooner, towing our trophy behind us. This bear, upon admeasurement, proved to be full fifteen feet in his greatest length. His wool was perfectly white and very coarse, curling tightly. The eyes were of a blood red and larger than those of the Arctic bear. The snout also more rounded, rather 
resembling the snout of the bulldog. The meat was tender but excessively rank and fishy, although the men devoured it with avidity and declared it excellent eating. Scarcely had we got our prize alongside when the man at the masthead gave the joyful shout of land on the starboard bow. All hands were now upon the alert, and a breeze springing up very opportunely from the northward and eastward, we were soon close in with the coast. It proved to be a low rocky islet of about a league in circumference and altogether destitute of vegetation if we accept a species of prickly pear. In approaching it from the northward, a singular ledge of rock is seen projecting into the sea and bearing a strong resemblance to corded bales of cotton. Around this ledge to the westward is a small bay, at the bottom of which our boats effected a convenient landing. It did not take us long to explore every portion of the island, but with one exception we found nothing worthy of our observation. In the southern extremity we picked up near the shore, half buried in a pile of loose stones, a piece of wood which seems to have formed the prow of a canoe. There had been evidently some attempt at carving upon it, and Captain Guy fancied that he made out the figure of a tortoise, but the resemblance did not strike me very forcibly. Besides this prow, if such it were, we found no other token that any living creature had ever been here before. Around the coast we discovered occasional small flows of ice, but these were very few. The exact situation of the islet, to which Captain Guy gave the name of Bennett's Islet, in honor of his partner in the ownership of the schooner, is 82 degrees 50 minutes south latitude, 42 degrees 20 minutes west longitude. We had now advanced to the southward more than eight degrees farther than any previous navigators, and the sea still lay perfectly open before us. We found, too, that the variation uniformly decreased as we proceeded. And what was still more surprising, that the temperature of the air, and latterly of the water, became milder. The weather might even be called pleasant, and we had a steady but very gentle breeze, always from some northern point of the compass. The sky was usually clear, with now and then a slight appearance of thin vapor in the southern horizon, this, however, was invariably of brief duration. Two difficulties alone presented themselves to our view. We were getting short of fuel, and symptoms of scurvy had occurred among several of the crew. These considerations began to impress upon Captain Guy the necessity of returning, and he spoke of it frequently. For my own part, Confident as I was of soon arriving at land of some description upon the course we were pursuing, and having every reason to believe from present appearances that we should not find it the sterile soil met with in the higher Arctic latitudes, I warmly pressed upon him the expediency of persevering, at least for a few days longer in the direction we were now holding. So tempting an opportunity of solving the great problem in regard to an Antarctic continent had never yet been afforded to man, and I confess that I felt myself bursting with indignation at the timid and ill-timed suggestions of our commander. 
I believe indeed that what I could not refrain from saying to him on this head had the effect of inducing him to push on. Well, therefore, I cannot but lament the most unfortunate and bloody events which immediately arose from my advice. I must still be allowed to feel some degree of gratification at having been instrumental, however remotely, in opening to the eye of science one of the most intensely exciting secrets which has ever engrossed its attention. Recording by Cooper Leaf The Works of Edgar Allan Poe Raven Edition Volume 3 By Edgar Allan Poe Chapter 18 January 18 This morning Footnote 4 The terms morning and evening, which I have made use of to avoid confusion in my narrative as far as possible, must not, of course, be taken in their ordinary sense. For a long time past we had had no night at all, the daylight being continual. The dates throughout are according to nautical time, and the bearing must be understood as per compass. I would also remark in this place that I cannot, in the first portion of what is here written, pretend to strict accuracy in respect to dates, or latitudes and longitudes, having kept no regular journal until after the period of which this first portion treats. In many instances I have relied altogether upon memory. End of footnote 4. We continued to the southward with the same pleasant weather as before. The sea was entirely smooth, the air tolerably warm and from the northeast. The temperature of the water, 53. We now again got our sounding gear in order, and with 150 fathoms of line, found the current setting toward the pole at the rate of a mile an hour. This constant tendency to the southward, both in the wind and current, caused some degree of speculation, and even alarm, in different quarters of the schooner, and I saw distinctly that no little impression had been made upon the mind of Captain Guy. He was exceedingly sensitive to ridicule, however, and I finally succeeded in laughing him out of his apprehensions. The variation was now very trivial. In the course of the day, we saw several large whales of the right species, and innumerable flights of the albatross passed over the vessel. We also picked up a bush full of red berries like those of the hawthorn, and the carcass of a singular-looking land animal. It was three feet in length, and but six inches in height, with four very short legs, the feet armed with long claws of a brilliant scarlet and resembling coral in substance. The body was covered with a straight, silky hair, perfectly white. The tail was peaked like that of a rat and about a foot and a half long. The head resembled a cat's, with the exception of the ears. These were flopped like the ears of a dog. The teeth were of the same brilliant scarlet as the claws. January 19. Today, being in latitude 83 degrees 20 minutes, longitude 43 degrees 5 minutes west, 
the sea being of an extraordinarily dark color, we again saw land from the masthead, and, upon closer scrutiny, found it to be one of a very large group of islands. The shore was precipitous, and the interior seemed to be well wooded, a circumstance which occasioned us great joy. In about four hours from our first discovering the land, we came to anchor in ten fathoms, sandy bottom, a leak from the coast, as a high surf with strong ripples here and there rendered a nearer approach of doubtful expediency. The two largest boats were now ordered out, and a party well armed, among whom were Peters and myself, proceeded to look for an opening in the reef, which appeared to encircle the island. After searching about for some time, we discovered an inlet, which we were entering when we saw four large canoes put off from the shore, filled with men who seemed to be well armed. We waited for them to come up, and as they moved with great rapidity, they were soon within hail. Captain Guy now held up a white handkerchief on the blade of an oar, when the strangers made a full stop and commenced a loud jabbering all at once, intermingled with occasional shouts, in which we could distinguish the words Anamumu and Lema Lema. They continued this for at least half an hour, during which we had a good opportunity of observing their appearance. In the four canoes, which might have been fifty feet long and five broad, there were a hundred and ten savages in all. They were about the ordinary stature of Europeans, but of a more muscular and brawny frame. Their complexion, a jet black, with thick and long woolly hair. They were clothed in skins of an unknown black animal, shaggy and silky, and made to fit the body with some degree of skill, the hair being inside, except were turned out about the neck, wrists, and ankles. Their arms consisted principally of clubs, of a dark and apparently very heavy wood. Some spears, however, were observed among them, added with flint, and a few slings. The bottoms of the canoes were full of black stones, about the size of a large egg. When they had concluded their harangue, for it was clear they intended their jabbering for such, one of them, who seemed to be the chief, stood up in the prow of his canoe and made signs for us to bring our boats alongside of him. This hint we pretended not to understand, thinking it the wiser plan to maintain, if possible, the interval between us, as their number more than quadrupled our own. Finding this to be the case, the chief ordered the three other canoes to hold back, while he advanced toward us with his own. As soon as he came up with us, he leaped on board the largest of our boats, and seated himself by the side of Captain Guy, pointing at the same time to the schooner and repeating the word, Anamumu and Lema Lema. We now put back to the vessel, the four canoes following at a little distance. Upon getting alongside, the chief evinced symptoms of extreme surprise and delight, clapping his hands, slapping his thighs and breast, and laughing obstreperously. His followers behind joined in his merriment, and for some minutes the din was so excessive as to be absolutely deafening. Quiet being at length restored, Captain Guy ordered the boats to be hoisted up as a necessary precaution, and gave the chief, 
whose name we soon found to be to it, to understand that we could admit no more than twenty of his men on deck at one time. With this arrangement he appeared perfectly satisfied and gave some directions to the canoes. When one of them approached, the rest remaining about fifty yards off. Twenty of the savages now got on board and proceeded to ramble over every part of the deck and scramble about among the rigging, making themselves much at home and examining every article with great inquisitiveness. It was quite evident that they had never before seen any of the white race, from whose complexion indeed they appeared to recoil. They believed the Jane to be a living creature, and seemed to be afraid of hurting it with the points of their spears, carefully turning them up. Our crew were much amused with the conduct of Tuit. In one instance, the cook was splitting some wood near the galley, and by accident stuck his axe into the deck, making a gash of considerable depth. The chief immediately ran up, and pushing the cook on one side rather roughly, commenced a half-whine, half-howl, strongly indicative of sympathy in what he considered the suffering of the schooner patting and smoothing the gash with his hand and washing it from a bucket of seawater which stood by. This was a degree of ignorance for which we were not prepared, and for my part I could not help thinking some of it affected. When the visitors had satisfied, as well as they could, their curiosity in regard to our upper works, they were admitted below, when their amazement exceeded all bounds. Their astonishment now appeared to be far too deep for words, for they roamed about in silence, broken only by low ejaculations. The arms afforded them much food for speculation, and they were suffered to handle and examine them at leisure. I do not believe that they had the least suspicion of their actual use, but rather took them for idols, seeing the care we had of them and the attention with which we watched their movements while handling them. At the great guns their wonder was redoubled. They approached them with every mark of the profoundest reverence and awe, but forbore to examine them minutely. There were two large mirrors in the cabin, and here was the acme of their amazement. To it was the first to approach them, and he had got in the middle of the cabin with his face to one and his back to the other before he fairly perceived them. Upon raising his eyes and seeing his reflected self in the glass, I thought the savage would go mad. But upon turning short round to make a retreat and behold himself a second time in the opposite direction, I was afraid he would expire upon the spot. No persuasion could prevail upon him to take another look. Throwing himself upon the floor with his face buried in his hands, he remained thus until we were obliged to drag him upon deck. The whole of the savages were admitted on board in this manner, twenty at a time, to it being suffered to remain during the entire period. We saw no disposition to thievery among them, nor did we miss a single article after their departure. Throughout the whole of their visit, they evinced the most friendly manner. There were, however, some points in their demeanor which we found it impossible to understand. For example, we could not 
get them to approach several very harmless objects, such as the schooner's sails, an egg, an open book, or a pan of flour. We endeavored to ascertain if they had among them any articles which might be turned to account in the way of traffic, but found great difficulty in being comprehended. We made out, nevertheless, what greatly astonished us, that the islands abounded in the large tortoise of the Galapagos, one of which we saw in the canoe of Tewit. We also saw some bache de mer in the hands of one of the savages, who was greedily devouring it in its natural state. These anomalies, for they were such when considered in regard to the latitude, induced Captain Guy to wish for a thorough investigation of the country, in the hope of making a profitable speculation in his discovery. For my own part, anxious as I was to know something more of these islands, I was still more earnestly bent on prosecuting the voyage to the southward without delay. We had now fine weather, but there was no telling how long it would last. And being already in the 84th parallel, with an open sea before us, a current setting strongly to the southward, and the wind fair, I could not listen with any patience to a proposition of stopping longer than was absolutely necessary for the health of the crew and the taking on board of a proper supply of fuel and fresh provisions. I represented to the captain that we might easily make this group on our return and winter here in the event of being blocked up by the ice. He at length came to my views, for in some way hardly known to myself, I had acquired much influence over him, and it was finally resolved that even in the event of our finding Bache de Mer, we should only stay here a week to recruit and then push on to the southward while we might. Accordingly, we made every necessary preparation, and under the guidance of Tewit, got the Jane through the reef in safety, coming to anchor about a mile from the shore in an excellent bay, completely landlocked on the southeastern coast of the main island, and in ten fathoms of water, black sandy bottom. At the head of this bay there were three fine springs, we were told, of good water, and we saw abundance of wood in the vicinity. The four canoes followed us in, keeping, however, at a respectful distance. Tewit himself remained on board, and upon our dropping anchor, invited us to accompany him on shore, and visit his village in the interior. To this Captain Guy consented, and ten savages being left on board as hostages, a party of us, twelve in all, got in readiness to attend the chief. We took care to be well armed, yet without evincing any distrust. The schooner had her guns out, her boarding netting up, and every other proper precaution was taken to guard against surprise. Directions were left with the chief mate to admit no person on board during our absence, and in the event of our not appearing in twelve hours, to send the cutter, with a swivel, around the island in search of us. At every step we took inland, the conviction forced itself upon us that we were in a country differing essentially from any hitherto visited by civilized men. We saw nothing with which we had been formerly conversant. The trees resembled no growth of either the torrid, the temperate, of the northern frigid zones, and were altogether unlike those of the lower southern latitudes we had already traversed. 
The very rocks were novel in their mass, their color, and their stratification, and the streams themselves, utterly incredible as it may appear, had so little in common with those of other climates that we were scrupulous of tasting them, and indeed had difficulty in bringing ourselves to believe that their qualities were purely those of nature. At a small brook which crossed our path, the first we had reached, to it and his attendants halted to drink. On account of the singular character of the water, we refused to taste it, supposing it to be polluted. And it was not until some time afterward we came to understand that such was the appearance of the streams throughout the whole group. I am at a loss to give a distinct idea of the nature of this liquid, and cannot do so without many words. Although it flowed with rapidity in all declivities where common water would do so, yet never, except when falling in a cascade, had it the customary appearance of limpidity. It was nevertheless in point of fact as perfectly limpid as any limestone water in existence, the difference being only in appearance. At first sight, and especially in cases where little declivity was found, it bore resemblance, as regards consistency, to a thick infusion of gum arabic in common water. But this was only the least remarkable of its extraordinary qualities. It was not colorless, nor was it of any one uniform color, presenting to the eye, as it flowed, every possible shade of purple, like the hues of a changeable silk. This variation in shade was produced in a manner which excited as profound astonishment in the minds of our party as the mirror had done in the case of Tuit. Upon collecting a basin full and allowing it to settle thoroughly, we perceived that the whole mass of liquid was made up of a number of distinct veins, each of a distinct hue. That these veins did not commingle, and that their cohesion was perfect in regard to their own particles among themselves, and imperfect in regard to neighboring veins. Upon passing the blade of a knife athwart the veins, the water closed over it immediately, as with us, and also in withdrawing it, all traces of the passage of the knife were instantly obliterated. If, however, the blade was passed down accurately between the two veins, a perfect separation was effected, which the power of cohesion did not immediately rectify. The phenomena of this water form the first definite link in that vast chain of apparent miracles with which I was destined to be at length encircled. End of section 18. Recording by Cooper Leaf. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe. Chapter 19 We were nearly three hours in reaching the village, it being more than nine miles in the interior, and the path lying through a rugged country. As we passed along, the party of two wit, the hundred and ten savages of the canoes, was momentarily strengthened by smaller detachments of from two to six or seven, which joined us as if by accident at different turns of the road. 
There appeared so much of a system in this that I could not help feeling distrust, and I spoke to Captain Guy of my apprehensions. It was now too late, however, to recede, and we concluded that our best security lay in evincing a perfect confidence in the good faith of Tewit. We accordingly went on, keeping a wary eye upon the maneuvers of the savages, and not permitting them to divide our numbers by pushing in between. In this way, passing through a precipitous ravine, we at length reached what we were told was the only collection of habitations upon the island. As we came in sight of them, the chief set up a shout, and frequently repeated the word clock clock, which we supposed to be the name of the village, or perhaps the generic name for villages. The dwellings were of the most miserable description imaginable, and unlike those of even the lowest of the savage races with which mankind are acquainted, were of no uniform plan. Some of them, and these we had found belonged to the Wampoos or Yampoos, the great men of the land, consisted of a tree, cut down at about four feet from the root, with a large black skin thrown over it, and hanging in loose folds upon the ground. Under this the savage nestled. Others were formed by means of rough limbs of trees, with the withered foliage upon them, made to recline at an angle of forty-five degrees against a bank of clay, heaped up without regular form to the height of five or six feet. Others again were mere holes dug in the earth perpendicularly and covered over with similar branches, these being removed when the tenant was about to enter, and pulled on again when he had entered. A few were built among the forked limbs of trees, as they stood, the upper limbs being partially cut through so as to bend over the lower, thus forming thicker shelter from the weather. The greater number, however, consisted of small, shallow caverns, apparently scratched in the face of a precipitous ledge of dark stone, resembling fuller's earth, with which three sides of the village were bounded. At the door of each of these primitive caverns was a small rock, which the tenant carefully placed before the entrance upon leaving his residence, for what purpose I could not ascertain, as the stone itself was never of a sufficient size to close up more than a third of the opening. This village, if it were worthy of the name, lay in a valley of some depth, and could only be approached from the southward, the precipitous ledge of which I have already spoken, cutting off all access in other directions. Through the middle of the valley ran a brawling stream of the same magical-looking water which has been described. We saw several strange animals about the dwellings, all appearing to be thoroughly domesticated. The largest of these creatures resembled our common hog in the structure of the body and snout. The tail, however, was bushy, and the legs slender as those of the antelope. Its motion was exceedingly awkward and indecisive, and we never saw it attempt to run. We noticed also several animals very similar in appearance, but of a greater length of body and covered with a black wool. There were a great variety of tame fowls running about, and these seemed to constitute the chief food of the natives. To our astonishment, we saw black albatross among these birds in a state of entire domestication, going to sea periodically for food, but always returning to the village as a home, and using the southern shore in the vicinity as a place of incubation. There they were joined by their friends, the pelicans, as usual, but these latter 
never followed them to the dwellings of the savages. Among the other kinds of tame fowls were ducks, differing very little from the canvasback of our own country, black gannets, and a large bird not unlike the buzzard in appearance, but not carnivorous. Of fish there seemed to be a great abundance. We saw during our visit a quantity of dried salmon, rock cod, blue dolphins, mackerel, blackfish, skate, conger eels, elephant fish, mullets, soles, parrotfish, leather jackets, gunnards, hake, flounders, paracutas, and innumerable other varieties. We noticed, too, that most of them were similar to the fish about the group of Lord Auckland Islands in a latitude as low as 51 degrees south. The Galapago tortoise was also very plentiful. We saw but few wild animals, none of a large size or of a species with which we were familiar. One or two serpents of a formidable aspect crossed our path, but the natives paid them little attention, and we concluded they were not venomous. As we approached the village with Tewit and his party, a vast crowd of the people rushed out to meet us with loud shouts, among which we could only distinguish the everlasting Anamu Mu and Lama Lama. We were much surprised at perceiving that, with one or two exceptions, these newcomers were entirely naked, and skins being used only by the men of the canoes. All the weapons of the country seemed also to be in the possession of the latter, for there was no appearance of any among the villagers. There were a great many women and children, the former not altogether wanting in what might be termed personal beauty. They were straight, tall, and well-formed, with a grace and freedom of carriage not to be found in civilized society. Their lips, however, like those of the men, were thick and clumsy, so that even when laughing the teeth were never disclosed. Their hair was of a finer texture than that of the males. Among these naked villagers there might have been ten or twelve who were clothed, like the party of Tewit, in dresses of black skin, and armed with lances and heavy clubs. These appeared to have great influence among the rest, and were always addressed by the title Wampu. These two were the tenants of the black-skin palaces. That of Tewit was situated in the center of the village, and was much larger and somewhat better constructed than others of its kind. The tree which formed its support was cut off at a distance of twelve feet or thereabouts from the root, and there were several branches left just below the cut, these serving to extend the covering, and in this way prevent its flapping about the trunk. The covering, too, which consisted of four very large skins, fastened together with wooden skewers, was secured at the bottom with pegs, driven through it and into the ground. The floor was strewed with a quantity of dry leaves by way of carpet. To this hut we were conducted with great solemnity, and as many of the natives crowded in after us as possible. Tewit seated himself on the leaves, and made signs that we should follow his example. This we did, and presently found ourselves in a situation peculiarly uncomfortable, if not indeed critical. We were on the ground, twelve in number, with the savages as many as forty, sitting on their hams so closely around us, that if any disturbance had arisen, we should have found it impossible to make use of our arms or indeed to have risen to our feet. The pressure was not only inside the tent but outside, 
where probably was every individual on the whole island. The crowd being prevented from trampling us to death only by the incessant exertions and vociferations of Tuwit. Our chief security lay, however, in the presence of Tuwit himself among us, and we resolved to stick by him closely as the best chance of extricating ourselves from the dilemma, sacrificing him immediately upon the first appearance of hostile design. After some trouble, a certain degree of quiet was restored when the chief addressed us in a speech of great length and very nearly resembling the one delivered in the canoes, with the exception that the Anamumus were now somewhat more strenuously insisted upon than the Lama Lamas. We listened in profound silence until the conclusion of this harangue, when Captain Guy replied by assuring the chief of his eternal friendship and goodwill, concluding what he had to say by a present of several strings of blue beads and a knife. At the former, the monarch, much to our surprise, turned up his nose with some expression of contempt. But the knife gave him the most unlimited satisfaction, and he immediately ordered dinner. This was handed into the tent over the heads of the attendants, and consisted of the palpitating entrails of a species of unknown animal, probably one of the slim-legged hogs, which we had observed in our approach to the village. Seeing us at a loss of how to proceed, he began, by way of setting us an example, to devour yard after yard of the enticing food, until we could positively stand it no longer, and evinced such manifest symptoms of rebellion of stomach as inspired his majesty with a degree of astonishment only inferior to that brought about by the looking-glasses. We declined, however, partaking of the delicacies before us, and endeavored to make him understand that we had no appetite whatever, having just finished a hearty dejoiner. When the monarch had made an end of his meal, we commenced a series of cross-questioning in every ingenious manner we could devise, with a view of discovering what were the chief productions of the country, and whether any of them might be turned to profit. At length he seemed to have some idea of our meaning, and offered to accompany us to a part of the coast where he assured us the Bige de Mer, pointing to a specimen of that animal, was to be found in great abundance. We were glad of this early opportunity of escaping from the oppression of the crowd, and signified our eagerness to proceed. We now left the tent, and accompanied by the whole population of the village, followed the chief to the southeastern extremity of the island, not far from the bay where our vessel lay at anchor. We waited here for about an hour, until the four canoes were brought around by some of the savages to our station. The whole of our party, then getting into one of them, we were paddled along the edge of the reef before mentioned, and of another still farther out, where we saw a far greater quantity of biche de mer than the oldest seamen among us had ever seen in those groups of the lower latitudes most celebrated for this article of commerce. We stayed near these reefs only long enough to satisfy ourselves that we could easily load a dozen vessels with the animal if necessary. When we were taken alongside the schooner and parted with Tuwit, after obtaining from him a promise that he would bring us in the course of twenty-four hours as many of the canvasback ducks and Galapago tortoises as his canoe would hold. In the whole of this adventure we saw nothing in the demeanor of the natives calculated to create suspicion. 
with that single exception of the systematic manner in which their party were strengthened during our route from the schooner to the village. End of section 19. By Edgar Allan Poe. Chapter 20. The chief was as good as his word, and we were soon plentifully supplied with fresh provisions. We found the tortoises as fine as we had ever seen, and the ducks surpassed our best species of wild fowl, being exceedingly tender, juicy, and well-flavored. Besides these, the savages brought us, upon our making them comprehend our wishes, a vast quantity of brown celery and scurvy grass, with a canoe-load of fresh fish and some dried. The celery was a treat indeed, and the scurvy grass proved of incalculable benefit in restoring those of our men who had shown symptoms of disease. In a very short time we had not one single person on the sick list. We had also plenty of other kinds of fresh provisions, among which may be mentioned a species of shellfish resembling the mussel in shape, but with the taste of an oyster. Shrimps, too, and prawns were abundant, and albatross and other birds' eggs with dark shells. We took in, too, a plentiful stock of the flesh of the hog, which I've mentioned before. Most of the men found it a palatable food, but I thought it fishy and otherwise disagreeable. In return for these good things, we presented the natives with blue beads, brass trinkets, nails, knives, and pieces of red cloth, they being fully delighted in the exchange. We established a regular market on shore, just under the guns of the schooner, where our barterings were carried on with every appearance of good faith, and a degree of order which their conduct at the village of Clock Clock had not led us to expect from the savages. Matters went on thus very amicably for several days, during which parties of the natives were frequently on board the schooner, and parties of our men frequently on shore, making long excursions into the interior, and receiving no molestation whatever. Finding the ease with which the vessel might be loaded with biche de mer, owing to the friendly disposition of the islanders, and the readiness with which they would render us assistance in collecting it, Captain Guy resolved to enter into negotiations with Tuwit for the erection of suitable houses in which to cure the article, and for the services of himself and tribe in gathering as much as possible, while he himself took advantage of the fine weather to prosecute his voyage to the southward. Upon mentioning this project to the chief, he seemed very willing to enter into an agreement. A bargain was accordingly struck, and perfectly satisfactory to both parties, by which it was arranged that after making the necessary preparations, such as laying off the proper grounds, erecting a portion of the buildings, and doing some other work in which the whole of our crew would be required, the schooner should proceed on her route, leaving three of her men on the island to superintend the fulfillment of the project, and instruct the natives in drying the biche de mer. In regard to terms, these were made to depend upon the exertions of the savages in our absence. They were to receive a stipulated quantity of blue bees, knives, red cloth, and so forth, for every certain number of picules of the biche de mer, which should be ready on our return. A description of the nature of this important article of commerce, and the method of preparing it, may prove of some interest to my readers, and I can find no more suitable place than this for introducing an account of it. 
The following comprehensive notice of the substance is taken from a modern history of a voyage to the South Seas. It is that mollusca from the Indian Seas, which is known to commerce by the French name Bouge de Mer, a nice morsel from the sea. If I am not much mistaken, the celebrated Cuvier calls it Gasteropedia pulmonifera. It is abundantly gathered in the coasts of the Pacific Islands, and gathered especially for the Chinese market, where it commands a great price, perhaps as much as their much-talked-about edible birds' nests, which are properly made up of the gelatinous matter picked up by a species of swallow from the body of these mollusque. They have no shells, no legs, nor any prominent part, except an absorbing and an excretory. Opposite organs, but by their elastic wings, like caterpillars or worms, they creep in shallow waters in which, when low, they can be seen by a kind of swallow, the sharp bill of which, inserted in the soft animal, draws a gummy and filamentous substance, which, by drying, can be wrought into the solid walls of their nest, hence the name of Gasteropeda pulmonifera. This mollusca is oblong, and of different sizes, from three to eighteen inches in length, and I have seen a few that were not less than two feet long. They were nearly round, a little flattish on one side, which lies next to the bottom of the sea, and they are from one to eight inches thick. They crawl up into shallow water at particular seasons of the year, probably for the purpose of gendering, as we often find them in pairs. It is when the sun has the most power on the water, rendering it tepid, that they approach the shore and they often go up into places so shallow that on the tides receding they are left dry, exposed to the beat of the sun. But they do not bring forth their young in shallow water, as we never see any of their progeny, and full-grown ones are always observed coming in from deep water. They feed principally on that class of zoophytes which produce the coral. The beige demure is generally taken in three or four feet of water after which they are brought on shore and split at one end with a knife, the incision being one inch or more according to the size of the mollusca. Through this opening the entrails are forced out by pressure, and they are much like those of any other small tenant of the deep. The article is then washed and afterward boiled to a certain degree, which must not be too much or too little. They are then buried in the ground for four hours, then boiled again for a short time, after which they are dried, either by the fire or the sun. Those cured by the sun are worth the most, but where one picule, 133 and a third pounds, can be cured that way, I can cure 30 picules by the fire. When once properly cured, they can be kept in a dry place for two or three years without any risk. But they should be examined once in every few months, say four times a year, to see if any dampness is likely to affect them. The Chinese, as before stated, consider Bige de Mer a very great luxury, believing that it wonderfully strengthens and nourishes the system, and renews the exhausted system of the immoderate voluptuary. The first quality commands a high price in Canton, being worth $90 a picule. The second quality, $75. The third, $50. The fourth, $30. The fifth, $20 the sixth twelve dollars, the seventh eight dollars, and the eighth four dollars. Small cargoes, however, will often bring more in Manila, Singapore, and Batavia. An agreement having been thus entered into, 
we proceeded immediately to land everything necessary for preparing the buildings and clearing the ground. A large flat space near the eastern shore of the bay was selected, where there was plenty of both wood and water, and within a convenient distance of the principal reefs on which the Biche de Mer was to be procured. We now all set to work in good earnest, and soon, to the great astonishment of the savages, had felled a sufficient number of trees for our purpose, getting them quickly in order for the framework of the houses, which in two or three days was so far under way that we could safely trust the rest of the work to the three men whom we intended to leave behind. And these were John Carson, Alfred Harris, and Tom Peterson, all natives of London, I believe, who volunteered their services in this respect. By the last of the month, we had everything in readiness for departure. We had agreed, however, to pay a formal visit of leave-taking to the village, and to wit insisted so pertinaciously upon our keeping the promise that we did not think it advisable to run the risk of offending him by a final refusal. I believe that not one of us had at this time the slightest suspicion of the good faith of the savages. They had uniformly behaved with the greatest decorum, aiding us with alacrity in our work offering us their commodities, frequently without price, and never, in any instance, pilfering a single article, although the high value they set upon the goods we had with us was evident by the extravagant demonstrations of joy always manifested upon our making them a present. The women especially were most obliging in every respect, and upon the whole we should have been the most suspicious of human beings had we entertained a single thought of perfidy on the part of a people who treated us so well. A very short while sufficed to prove that this apparent kindness of disposition was only the result of a deeply laid plan for our destruction, and that the islanders, for whom we entertained such inordinate feelings of esteem, were among the most barbarous, subtle, and bloodthirsty wretches that ever contaminated the face of the globe. It was on the 1st of February, that we went on shore for the purpose of visiting the village. Although, as said before, we entertained not the slightest suspicion. Still, no proper precaution was neglected. Six men were left in the schooner, with instructions to permit none of the savages to approach the vessel during our absence, under any pretense whatever, and to remain constantly on deck. The boarding nettings were set up, the guns double-shotted with grape and canister, and the swivels loaded with canisters of musket-balls. She lay with her anchor apeak about a mile from the shore, and no canoe could approach her in any direction without being distinctly seen and exposed to the full fire of our swivels immediately. The six men being left on board, our shore party consisted of thirty-two persons in all. We were armed to the teeth, having with us muskets, pistols, and cutlasses, Besides, each had a long kind of seaman's knife, somewhat resembling the bowie knife, now so much used throughout our western and southern country. A hundred of the black-skin warriors met us at the landing for the purpose of accompanying us on our way. We noticed, however, with some surprise, that they were now entirely without arms, and upon questioning to wit in relation to this circumstance, he merely answered that, Mati non we papa si, meaning that there was no need of arms where all are brothers. We took this in good part and proceeded. We had passed the spring and rivulet of which I before spoke, and were now entering upon a narrow gorge leading through the chain of soapstone hills among which the village was situated. 
This gorge was very rocky and uneven, so much so that it was with no little difficulty we scrambled through it on our first visit to Clock Clock. The whole length of the ravine might have been a mile and a half, or probably two miles. It wound in every possible direction through the hills, having apparently formed at some remote period the bed of a torrent, in no instance proceeding more than twenty yards without an abrupt turn. The sides of this dell would have averaged, I am sure, seventy or eighty feet in perpendicular attitude throughout the whole of their extent, and in some portions they arose to an astonishing height, overshadowing the pass so completely that but little of the light of day could penetrate. The general width was about forty feet, and occasionally it diminished so as not to allow the passage of more than five or six persons abreast. In short, there could be no place in the world better adapted for the consummation of an ambuscade, and it was no more than natural that we should look carefully to our arms as we entered upon it. When I now think of our egregious folly, the chief subject of astonishment seems to be that we should have ever ventured, under any circumstances, so completely into the power of unknown savages as to permit them to march both before and behind us in our progress through this ravine. Yet such was the order we blindly took up, trusting foolishly to the force of our party. The unarmed condition of Tewit and his men, the certain efficacy of our firearms, whose effect was yet a secret to the natives, and more than all to the long-sustained pretension of friendship kept up by these infamous wretches. Five or six of them went on before, as if to lead the way, ostentatiously busying themselves in removing the larger stones and rubbish from the path. Next came our own party. We walked closely together, taking care only to prevent separation. Behind followed the main body of the savages, observing unusual order and decorum. Dirk Peters, a man named Wilson Allen, and myself were on the right of our companions, examining as we went along the singular stratification of the precipice which overhung us. A fissure in the soft rock attracted our attention. It was about wide enough for one person to enter without squeezing, and extended back into the hill some eighteen or twenty feet in a straight course, sloping afterward to the left. The height of the opening, as far as we could see into it from the main gorge, was perhaps sixty or seventy feet. There were one or two stunted shrubs growing from the crevices, bearing a species of filbert which I felt some curiosity to examine, and pushed in briskly for that purpose, gathering five or six of the nuts at a grasp, and then hastily retreating. As I turned, I found that Peters and Allen had followed me. I desired them to go back, as there was not room for two persons to pass, saying they should have some of my nuts. They accordingly turned, and were scrambling back. Alan being close to the mouth of the fissure, when I was suddenly aware of a concussion, resembling nothing I had ever before experienced, and which impressed me with a vague conception. If indeed I then thought of anything, that the whole foundation of the solid globe were suddenly rent asunder, and that the day of universal dissolution was at hand. End of section 20